From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you Unconquered with Doc Staples. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by EPR Creations, by Luis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, by Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, by Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and by my newest advertising partner, Justin Galloway of Benchmark Mortgage. As always, information's in the show notes. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered podcast with Doc Staples. All right, it's time to get to the Duke preview. And after a couple of weeks of kind of mailing it in, honestly, because uh, when you turned on the tape of the of those opponents, it was like, well, um, <laughs> it's really not a whole lot to see here. And uh, they should just go in and, and be able to roll these teams, even with their uh, B or C game. This is not one of those games. Duke is a good football team. And I've, I've taken good look at what they do and uh, what kind of problems they can present. And this is a team that can present some significant problems to this Florida State team. I mean, just ask Clemson. That's a Clemson team that should have beaten you. That's a Clemson team that outplayed Florida State through most of that game in Death Valley that went in and got spanked pretty good in Durham in week one. Now, granted, that is week one. Week one can be a little funky. And yes, I mean, I do think if that matchup were played tomorrow, maybe maybe it has a different outcome. But ultimately, when you go back and look at that game, that was not, that was not a fluke. That was not a team a plucky underdog that was significantly worse than the team that they beat managing to just roll snake eyes six times in a row. That was not that. That was one good football team beating another team that might be a little better than, than that team, all, all things being equal. And maybe that, that game, if you play it 10 times, Clemson wins six or seven of them. But that was not a one in 10 or, or you know one in 20 shot. That was a good Duke team managing to just have the dice roll the right way a few times to beat a good Clemson team. And then, just in case you weren't sure whether or not that was a legit team, they went out and they outplayed Notre Dame for very close to four quarters. And then... They were one fourth and 16 conversion for Notre Dame away from winning that game and really should have won that game. This team could very easily be undefeated coming into this game. And only reason that they're not more highly respected ultimately is because of the names on the jerseys and their helmets. This is absolutely a Duke team that can beat Florida State. And yeah, it's... Well, let's just get into it. Let's 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 start the uh, the breakdown. We're going to start with the Duke offense against the Florida State defense. And when when Duke is on offense against the Florida State defense, there's 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 quite a bit to discuss here. So first of all, the the opening question, the 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 question that hangs over this whole game is obviously whether quarterback Riley Leonard is going to be ready to play this game or not. Obviously had a really nasty-looking high ankle sprain against Notre Dame. And, you know, high ankle sprains for a very long time have basically been the kiss of death for really being productive the rest of the season. I mean, that's 
that's an injury that in the past, because of the way, so difference between a high ankle sprain and a low ankle sprain. Low ankle sprain is a typical ankle sprain. It's when when your foot turns out and you kind of roll that ankle. And that can be really bad. I mean, you can turn it over really, really bad. You can break your ankle. You can, as I've done, tear, you know, your ATFL and your CFL, you know, fully through that sort of thing. It can be really bad. But normally, you can manage to get back to play and be more effective off of that more quickly with that kind of ankle sprain if it's just a sprain compared to a high ankle sprain where it is turned inside. Normally, that happens when somebody falls on you from outside the leg, which is what happened to to Leonard, and then the, the ankle turns in that way. So instead of rolling out, it turns over towards the inside. And what that does is that stretches all of the stuff down the medial part of the inside part of the leg and all the way down into that medial ankle area. And that that's that's really hard. That that stays tender for a long time and it doesn't recover quickly. There's not a ton of blood flow down there. And so for a long time, you know, you're looking at six, eight weeks before you're, you know, close to back to really in action and maybe a year before you're really feeling like you you've gotten back to normal with that injury. But in the last few years, there's been some significant advances in treating that injury uh, most notably, the uh, there's a surgery called a tightrope procedure. Uh, it's what Tua Tungabaloa had done uh, when a couple times when he was at uh, at, at Alabama. It's what uh, Brock Bowers just had done uh, at at Georgia. A similar uh, high ankle sprain for him. And uh, Riley Leonard, I'm pretty sure had that that same procedure done, which is why they're talking about him potentially being back as early as this game. That expedites that what they do basically with that tightrope is after all those, all that stuff has been stretched out on the inside of of the leg and inside of the ankle, they basically go in and they suture it so that they, they allow that stuff to, instead of being all stretched out, they, they essentially tighten it back up that area and then allow it to heal in that tighter, tighter space. And that allows you to get back to playing much faster and essentially your, your body heals much better. And by using sutures instead of, uh, instead of screws or whatever, your body doesn't respond real well to screws in, in that area. Uh, they, you know, break all sorts of different things. Sutures, they, if they do it right, uh, they, they can stay in there for a good while and just keep things tight. And, you know, then you just kind of heal through that area and it, it ends up healing up a lot better. That, expedites the the recovery time that basically cuts the initial recovery before you can start to do some rehab and all of that in less than half. And then how quickly you can actually get to closer to feeling, you know, closer to hundred percent. He's not going to feel hundred percent this, the rest of the season, but how quickly you can get to being an effective athlete is, is much faster. Normally you're going to expect somewhere around four to six weeks after that kind of procedure to really being kind of ready to go. And this is on the three week timeline. So it's a little bit early on the early frame of that uh, or early side of that. But just depending on how fast he heals, some people heal a little faster and, you know, some injuries heal a little faster. It's not impossible that he could play. That said, I mean, if you're Duke, you, you got to be really judicious about this decision. So yeah, that's, that's the, that's going to be the open question. Cause this is, this is a really different team with Riley Leonard at quarterback. I, I think Leonard is right there in the top two, three quarterbacks in the ACC. He, I, he's, he is really, really good to me. I mean, I, I think he, he 
He's underrated as a as a quarterback. He's a guy that's really accurate in the short to intermediate area, which which suits their offense really well because they don't have a bunch of playmakers outside. And he just locates it so well, and he reads the field really well. Understands where to put the football on the you know inside part of the field. Can make throws to the outer half. Has a has a big enough arm to to do things downfield. Just a really efficient passer. And then he's a an outstanding athlete. Just an excellent athlete. And hard to get on the ground. I mean, look at look at the highlight run. If you if you get a chance, go to YouTube and look at the highlight run that he had for a touchdown against Duke. When you get those Duke backers get their hands on you and you don't go down, you are a load. He is hard to get down on the ground. And because of how hard he is to get down on the ground, when they need extra yardage, he becomes a real weapon in the in the quarterback run game because he's just so big and hard to hard to get on the ground, so strong and powerful through those legs. And then he runs a four five. So, I mean, you're talking about a guy that that in a lot of ways does a lot of the things for them that Jordan Travis does for Florida State. But he's a better thrower in the intermediate area, whereas Travis is a better thrower in the, you know, long. Travis is a long ball thrower, essentially. But Leonard is a more consistent thrower in terms of the intermediate area of of the field and and just making those kind of routine throws. So, like I said, early side, but potential that he, he could play. And if he plays this this game get and and if he's anywhere close to effective and able to move around, this this game gets even more interesting. Uh, generally speaking, with him on the field, they've they've aimed to be a very efficient offense. So they run a possession passing attack for the most part, and then every so often they'll take a shot. But again, they don't have major de- major players down the field for the most part. Uh, so. Essentially, they're trying to just make sure that with a lot of RPO type stuff and all that, they're very run heavy. They're going to they're going to run the football, run a lot of RPOs and screens and things off of that. And Leonard basically just runs that offense like a point guard. That's the norm. They didn't do that as much last week with Henry Balin, the fourth at quarterback. Uh, he He's he's more of a big armed guy and. Against NC State, they they didn't really do a whole lot of the possession pass type stuff. They they were still very run heavy, ran the football forty times, but they also took they they took more deep shots. Essentially, is what they what they tried to do in the passing game. They only completed four four passes. They went four of twelve against NC State, but two of them were touchdowns, including a long stop and go, which was beautifully thrown, and uh, and essentially that put that game. That put Duke up early and that changed that that football game. Now, it, the question here is whether or not that was an outlier because that, that game, that was a messy game. Most of it was played in a downpour or a good portion of that game was played in a downpour. Uh, and Duke went up 17 to three early in the game and was up 24 to three midway through the third quarter. So it may have just been an outlier as like, well, you know, up 17 to three in a downpour. Is there a whole lot of reason to do our usual, you know, RPO possession passing type game when we could just keep handing it off, running clock, and it doesn't look like NC State can score? So not sure that 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 necessarily holds to where they're just a big play, big player bust offense with with Balin on the field. But that was what they were last week. Um and he does throw a beautiful, he throws a pretty deep ball. So you, you do have to be aware of that. But I don't think he's quite as accurate. I mean, it would be amazing if he was as accurate as Leonard in that short to intermediate area 
which that you have to worry about with Leonard. So, so there, this is, this is one of those games where you do have to have a little bit of a second game plan for, uh, for the, the two different quarterbacks, because you know, really, you know that, that they're going to be able to throw a lot of that short and intermediate stuff. And you're gonna have to play real tight underneath for, with Leonard, because he's just, he's just that efficient as a thrower. And you're not quite sure about that with, with Balin, but you know that he's going to be a, uh, he's going to be a guy that can, that can get it over the top. So you have to be aware of that. Now, both quarterbacks are really good runners. Leonard, again, in particular, I mean, he's not Lamar Jackson, but he's really good. He's on the top end of college football in terms of a runner when he's got a healthy ankle. I'm not sure how much his ankle limits that if he does play in this, I'd, I'd imagine a reasonable amount, but they do involve their quarterbacks a good bit in the run game, and they are going to force you to play with numbers. And their main weapon I think just in terms of their overall offense, especially if Leonard is not on the field, is running back Jordan Waters. He is a very physical back and he is blistering fast. He will run away from you. You have to be gap sounder. He will gash you. He he gashed Clemson. If anybody's gashing Clemson, that means they're a good back. He gashed Clemson. He got Notre Dame a couple times. He had a, a very long run against uh, NC State, about an 80-yarder. So yeah, he he's he's the guy you really have to stop in this game. I think if Florida State is able to limit Waters on the ground, they probably win this football game. That's going to be easier said than done, though, because Duke offensive coordinator Kevin Johns is a Mike Norvell coaching tree guy. He was Mike Norvell's offensive coordinator at Memphis, and he runs basically a fork of Norvell's offense. So you're defensively, the good thing is that you've seen a lot of what they run because they run a lot of what you run. Now, they are, just like Norvell, they are very diverse in the running game. That's the thing that makes Duke offensively such a pain to defend. They base out of inside zone, but they run a very, very diverse running game. They they run a lot of outside zone, depending on what you play. Depending on what front you you bring out how you're playing the various uh the various gaps different things they will completely change up what they're doing on in the running game they'll run outside zone they'll run inside zone they'll run lots of you know pin and pull type stuff the the g play that norvell has so much success with if you go odd front they're gonna g and pin and pull you to death they run inverted veer they run veer They'll run counter, all sorts of different things. They'll go unbalanced. They'll they'll you know bring a tackle over. They will uh, they're, they're going to have lots of eye candy, lots of formation stuff to to get numbers, and then they're going to involve the quarterback in that game. And just like what Florida State does, they will RPO off of everything they do. So they'll pin and po- they'll pin and pull. They'll you know outside zone whatever, and they'll have a they'll have a, an RPO tagged on to every one of those. So you, you're you going to have your work cut out to make sure that you're defending the whole field all the time. And Florida State's linebackers, because of all the stuff they do formationally and in terms of motion, in terms of the quarterback run game, all of that stuff, Florida State's linebackers and the whole front have their work cut out to make sure all the fits are correct. Because what they're doing is they're just going to probe and probe and probe. And then if you get one guy out of the wrong gap at the wrong time, all of a sudden it's 70 yards because waters can really run. That That's what makes them such a pain to defend. And again, because of how well they run the quarterback, 
and those quarterbacks are tough to get on the ground, they're, they're four down, you know, play four down football threat to basically just hold on to the football and average, you know, three yards a carry. And they're fine with that. They just hang on to the football and play possession football. That's fine. So you have to, you have to actually beat them up front. You have to really trigger downhill against the running game, get some tackles for loss to get them off schedule, or they're just going to hang on to the football and find ways to, you know, matriculate the football down the field. That's what they do. And of course, if you trigger too fast as backers, they're just going to RPO you right behind it. So they're going to try to force you into man to man. And then of course, that is a, that's a, a death warrant against a drop back situation where the quarterback can scramble. So this is one of those games where I think Florida state's going to have their work cut out to, to handle the running game. Now, passing wise, like I said, they'll RPO off anything. They will run three verts, four verts type stuff. They'll play action, deep shots. Uh, some of the stuff like what Norvell does, you know, post post cross or post climb, that sort of thing. Uh, they'll back shoulder you. If you try to play over the top too much, uh, that's mostly with with Leonard. I, I would imagine they'll do some of the same stuff with Balin if if it's a dry game and if it's a game that's in doubt. They also double moved NC State a few times. They will have some shot plays re- uh, ready so that y- if you are in a single coverage situation, they'll double move you and they will try to get their uh, their their freebies basically. And their main guy there is uh, number five, Jalen Calhoun. He's the guy. He's the one guy they have in terms at wide receiver who kind of hurts you. He can, he can hurt you if you don't respect his speed. He's also an excellent punt returner. So you got to be aware of him as, as the athlete that you kind of need to know where he is. And you need to be aware that if they are going to take a deep shot, it's probably to that guy. So that that's kind of where they're at. But again, as a passing game, it really is the supplement to the really uh, diverse and robust running game that they're putting out there. Okay, flipping over to the other side of the ball. When Duke is on defense against the Florida State offense, this is really where I think the the really fun matchup is. Because this is a very opportunistic Duke defense that has punched well above their weight so far this year. And a guy that I think is a top five coordinator, defensive coordinator in college football, and Mike Elko. And... I think a top five offensive coordinator in uh, Mike Norvell. Of course, Atkins is actually the the de facto. He's the the offensive coordinator, the true offensive coordinator there, though it is Norvell's offense. It's a collaborative project. But this is one of the best schemed offenses and one of the best schemed and coached defenses in college football. And Duke is very, very multiple. They will they they will very much run. They're gonna. They're going to tailor what they do defensively to what you do offensively. It's one of the things that that Elko is so good at is he has his teams play really sound defensive football, but has built out a very flexible defensive scheme and defensive approach that keeps it simple for his players while being able to present a lot of different looks to offenses. And this is actually a very similar scheme to what Fuller runs for Florida State because Fuller runs a fork of Elko's defense. They coached together and Fuller runs essentially, I mean, it's the same same terminology, the same base stuff, all of that as Elko. 
Now, what Elko is running now is more of a hybrid scheme personnel wise and, and just in terms of the kinds of calls that they're that they're getting. The framework is the same, but the kind of stuff they're running is more of a hybrid scheme than what Florida State runs now. FSU is now really running more of a true four down, you know, four two type defense. Whereas what Fuller ran at Memphis and what they started with at Florida State was more of a hybrid closer to what Elko's doing at Duke now. But just because of personnel and what they were able to get on the field, uh, it just didn't make sense to do as much of the hybrid stuff with the personnel that they've had at Florida State the last couple of years. So now they're basically running more true defensive, two true defensive ends out there instead of a hybrid and a true defensive end. It's a little bit different. But Duke is a little bit more multiple in that respect, more of a hybrid. And, you know, the bench front where the, the bench front that that uh, that Fuller defaults to and that Elko uses when they're in the four man as his default as well, that does have a lot of sort of odd front feel to it. Uh, the bench front is where instead of the three technique being to the field side, which is how most teams play it, the one technique is to the field and the three technique is to the boundary. So you can, the, the front is kind of flipped compared to how that is for most teams. That feels like an odd front to a lot of teams when you're, when you're scheming against that offensively, that feels a lot more like an odd front because of just how the backers and the numbers work to the field side. Now, the difference is that Fuller runs again, he'll run a lot of bench front, but he's typically in four down with Elko. They run a lot of three down. This is an, a, a lot of true odd fronts of three down and uh, and then sort of moving around to see who's who that additional pressure guy is going to be. The Fox kind of moving off the line of scrimmage, the Fox being on the line of scrimmage, a lot of different things there. Now, the other thing is that Duke has been rock solid on the back end with excellent safeties and their corners have held up pretty well this year. Now, they base out of cover seven, just like Florida State. Now, you're going to hear a lot of people, just like with Florida State, misdiagnose that cover seven as just plan man. They're not plan man. They're plan matchup cover four. Now, if you release four verts, you get one-on-one. So it turns into a sort of man, but they, they are essentially playing man match or match zone coverage most of the time. Now that does change a little bit because like I said, against certain teams, they will change how much they're running different coverages. They're not a team that's going to stay in their base cover seven 80% of the time, like Florida State has at times. They ran a good bit of man free against Notre Dame, for example. So true man in that case, where you've got one single free safety deep, man to man with inside leverage. They did some of that against Notre Dame. And I think because their their emphasis against Notre Dame was they didn't think Notre Dame had playmakers on the outside. We're going to hold our corners are going to hold up. Got to stop the run. There you go. They didn't do all that much or they didn't do that all that much against NC State. Didn't play a lot of man free against NC State. Played a lot of cover seven. Played a decent amount of just true cover three against NC State. Either way, this is a team that does like to present a light box. This is a lot like what Florida State does at the pre-snap. They'll present a light box. They'll have six in the box, say. Or if you're loaded up and you go, say, uh, 12 personnel, 21 personnel, that type of thing. So you've got seven in the box. They'll match with seven in the box instead of eight. Sometimes they'll have six in the box against that look. 
but it's a deceptive light box. What they're trying to do is they're trying to game you into running the ball, and then they're going to have those safeties aggressively trigger to clean up. It's one of the benefits, again, of playing a quarters-based coverage is you have a half, half guy in the box on either side. Depending on which side you run the football to, one of those guys is coming down at, as a main run fit as that plus one in the running game, while the other's not. That's just typical quarters coverage. So in some sense, you have seven in the box. In some sense, you have nine in the box. But it looks like seven or six right up front. They've also, this year, they've done some Iowa State type stuff where they're going three-man front with some really aggressive secondary play. You know, fitting from that middle safety into the A-gap, different things like that. So, you know, using that kind of um, John Heacock type three-man front where they're getting really aggressive and it looks like it's an absolute run calculation if you're box counting, but they're coming downhill really hard and it actually is not a light box. So this is where they're going to game you a little bit and they're going to try to get you to do a lot of what Elko tries to do is he wants to force you to, to use your box counting principles or your basic adjustments at the line of scrimmage he wants to be the one, the last one holding the chalk to where he wants you to do what he wants you to do. He's going to try to game you to doing exactly what his defense is trying to prevent. And it's going to look like that's not what they're trying to prevent. And then all of a sudden, that is what they're trying to prevent at the snap. So this is where one of the interesting things I think this week is going to be seeing how much Mike Norvell has his guys kind of go against their usual sort of box counting principles expecting. So you counter the counter by doing the opposite, the opposite thing. So, you know, well against that box, look, normally we'd always hand it off, but we're going to have our quarterback here expect not to hand it off against that look because they often will do X, Y, and Z out of that look. So we're going to have a play action on that to take advantage of it and hit it in the teeth. That's one of the things that you have to do when you're playing against this, but sometimes you roll the dice wrong and that, that gets even trickier. So that's just the, that's the chess game that I'm going to be really interested in watching this game. Cause these two, these two coaches, these two offensive staffs or offensive versus defensive staff this is going to be a fun battle to see who, who is left holding the chalk last at the board. Now, they do get real aggressive in those cases, but when it comes to third down, let's say third and 12, third and eight, that sort of thing, they tend to drop eight a lot. So they drop eight more than most, and uh, they'll they'll go with a three deep five under coverage on longer yardage as their default. They've done that most of the year, and they're what they're going to do, there's corners and those safeties, that deep safety and those two corners are going to play over the top. They are just not going to let you on long yardage throw verticals and and have success. They're going to force you to throw in front of those guys and they want to layer that. They want you to throw, they want to force you to try to throw over the middle where they're going to have really active players. And again, you've got, they're dropping five in that intermediate area. They want you to throw into the teeth of that five under situation or to throw short. And then they're going to, they think they can come up and they have all season they're a really good disciplined team in terms of open field tackles. They think they're going to be able to come up and, and tackle you before you're able to get a guy to uh, to gain the first down on the run. So you're not going to get a bunch of one-on-one jump ball situations that are advantageous for the offense 
in long yardage. You get to long yardage and they they really use that leverage well. And Elko also has a great knack for when to bring pressure. They don't blitz a ton, but when they do blitz, they get home. You watch that last series against Notre Dame, and I know right now Elko still regrets not bringing a blitz on that fourth and 16 because they had blitzed the prior three plays, which is not their norm, but they blitzed the prior three plays and, and Hartman had no time. I mean, they kept getting to him, which is why it was third and 16. And then they did their usual drop eight on third and on fourth and 16, and he was able to run for 17. But normally they've got, I mean, they bring in, they bring in, I think, a little bit more than the norm in terms of blitz packages, and they use a diverse set of blitz packages against more mobile quarterbacks. You're going to see a lot of edge pressure from them. They'll actually bring, so they'll line up in, say, a three man line, and then they'll bring an extra two, maybe a corner from one side and a linebacker on the other. And, They'll bring and they'll bring those guys to kind of keep the quarterback contained and work their way to the quarterback. You've got to pr- protect well against them. So, uh, and, and the other thing is that they are they're they're about seven eight seven eight deep on their defensive line. They rotate a lot of guys up there to stay fresh, and all of them are a little undersized. But again, this is a very active and quick defensive line where they're going to get penetration generally. And Florida State's had trouble against quicker defensive linemen this year. You almost would rather have a you'd almost rather play a team with a bunch of 300 pounders up front that you can just get your hands on and probably win some power battles with as opposed to teams like this where they're going to they're going to challenge you in the gaps and all of that in the running game. Florida State's going to have to be really clean in terms of preventing penetration because this is a team where they, they are turning that defensive line loose to get penetration and to, to rush the passer. So, yeah, this is going to be a challenge in that respect. Now, to me, the key here is if you're going to have success against this Duke offense, you have to have first down success. And Florida State's not had a ton of first down success this year. But th- this is a game where they're going to have to be better on first down than they have been. You've got to have more success on early downs. If you give Elko leverage... If you're if you're in third and eight or longer, third and seven or longer, a bunch against Elko, that is bad juju for the offense. That is not good. He's going to find ways to cause problems, and you're going to turn the football over. So to me, this is a game where RPOs, some early down play action, using the tight ends down the field and the seams, some switch concepts, especially out of out of uh, condensed formations, that sort of thing. Those are things that you can do to try to get some leverage on those early downs when they're going to load up to stop the box or stop the run a little bit. Even if the box looks light, you do more of that on first down to basically take advantage of what they know is going to be a disadvantage for them size-wise and, and all of that to try to get some plays early. And I do think this is a game where 12 personnel is probably an advantage as long as your tight ends are blocking well in the running game. So I think this is where you can kind of condense some stuff down and force them to eat, to declare whether they really are committed to that light box or whether they're willing to, to match up with you one-on-one outside. And if you get the matchups that you want outside on early downs, that's when you take, that's when you take those shots because you're not going to be able to do it on longer yardage, not against this team. And I did see uh, Notre Dame had some success getting the, the tight end isolated against the linebackers and safeties downfield on early downs in particular in play action against Duke. 
I, I think this could be a big game for Jaheim Bell on some of those things. I think Kyle Morlock on, on some of this stuff also is a guy that is going to have some opportunities because of how they defend the run and all of that. There's some RPO stuff that you can do with, with those guys that I think gives them some opportunities against, again, Duke is a little undersized. And I think, uh, I think you can use some of the, some of your size on the inside to some advantage. And if you can start to have some success there, that opens it up for, again, the one-on-ones on the outside that you're trying to create. Now, the other thing is Duke has been excellent against the pass. They're one of the best in the country. I don't have the number in front of me, but I remember it was was really good in terms of not giving up long yardage plays in the passing game. So something you have to keep in mind. But here's where I think this this becomes the, the real question coming into this game. If you look at who they've played, Duke has not yet played a team with any playmakers at wide receiver. Their schedule so far, Clemson, Lafayette, Northwestern, UConn, Notre Dame, and NC State. Not one of those teams has a wide receiver that really scares you. Not one. Every one of those teams has has wide receivers that you could single cover with, with Duke's corners, and they've had success doing that. So the question is, are those corners going to be able to hold up against Keon Coleman or Johnny Wilson or, you know, Darian Williamson, any number of Florida State's outside receivers who I think are better than anybody they've played so far on the outside. Now, they do interestingly have some size at corner. Al Blades is their top corner. Al Blades Jr., he's the Miami transfer, of course, son of Al Blades Sr. 6'1", 200, good size, and he's a good corner. He's a guy that I expect to see matched up with Keon Coleman as often as they can get him there. That's that's where they would prefer. Another guy that I expect to see a lot get a lot of work in here. He's technically listed as a backup uh, corner, but he's played a lot. Is Miles Jones? He's a seventh year Texas A&M transfer. So he played under Elko at Texas A&M, and he's six four, one hundred ninety five pounds. Really long, unusually long corner. That's the guy that they're going to want to get matched up on Johnny Wilson as often as possible, I think. And they're going to try to go one-on-one with those guys. I, th- I think they're going to try to win one-on-one with those guys as much as possible. If anything, they'll probably tilt a little bit towards, uh, towards Keon with some, with some of the safety stuff. But if you condense the formation and you force them to, to match up there, I think you're going to get some one-on-ones on early downs against those receivers outside, against those corners. The other corners are small. Chandler, Chandler Rivers, he's the other starter technically at corner. Again, I think he'll play less in this one because of size. He's 5'10". They're Nichols, 5'10". They're safety, Jalen Stinson, 5'8". But he is a dynamic player and really good against the run in particular. And then the other, uh, the free safeties, 5'11", Jeremiah Lewis, another, uh, another transfer in from Northwestern. Good player. And their safeties, I think, are excellent. But to me, force them to cover your dynamic wide receivers down the field early in the game and on early downs. I think you've got to take your opportunities there. See if you can get some glance route RPOs off base runs. If they start, you know, matching up against your 12 personnel where you get some one-on-ones on the outside, see if you can get some of those, see what you can do with some of that. See if you can get some one-on-ones where you're getting down the field. I, I think this is a game where you take a couple early shots on first down. 
second and five. I think that's I think this is a game where you can do that because again, I want to know if I'm Alex Atkins or Mike Norvell, I want to know early on, okay, well, they've been great at not giving up the long stuff against other teams, but how are they going to fare against our guys? And are they going to match up one-on-one? If they don't match up one-on-one, then I'm going to, then I am going to run the football, but if they're going to match up one-on-one against that guy out there, I think I'm going to take some opportunities to see if, if my guy can just win. So that's the approach that I would take in this game, which is very similar to what they've done most of the season. But I think against Duke's defense in particular, you try to find that point of failure. You try to find where they don't have personnel that can match up with your personnel with the way that they want to play it, especially on early downs, later downs, they're going to, they're going to be problem. You do that on early downs and you get some wins and all of a sudden that can take a lot of pressure off your offense. Okay, so we're now to the summary and prediction part of the program. And as far as I see it, Duke's defense is legitimately really good. I mean, I think this is a top 15 or 20 defense in the country, probably. And Elko is a master at identifying weak spots in on your on your offense and exploiting those and then getting his defense leverage so that they can get off the field or get turnovers. And I think in this game, they're going to try to make Florida State one-dimensional by really shooting gaps and focusing on the run on early downs and essentially seeing if they can just survive those early down one-on-one matchups outside. So for me, key number one to this game is Johnny Wilson and Keon Coleman need to be dominant on early downs. If Duke can survive going one-on-one on early downs out there outside, Florida State's biggest advantage is essentially neutralized. So Florida State is going to need to have their big playmakers on the outside play like big playmakers. And they're going to need to have some plans to get those guys the rock early in the game on early downs when they've got leverage. Another thing here, though, is I think a big key to this game is FSU needs to be patient offensively. Duke is going to try to make this a lower scoring game. They're going to try to hang on to the football. They're going to, it's probably going to be frustrating at times that they've held on to the football as long as they had, as they have. That's just what they do in the running game. And they're going to try to depend on forcing a couple key mistakes, a couple turnovers. You screw up in the red zone and you don't score touchdowns on two or three trips into the red zone. And that's what they're counting on. You cannot play into their hands this way. You have to stay patient. You, and again, it's, it may sound contradictory for me to say, well, take advantage of your one-on-ones, win some verticals outside. Oh, and also stay patient. But again, you take your one-on-ones when they're available. Other than that, you, you really make an effort to stay on schedule. You play action pass on first down. You get your opportunity to take a, take a vertical down the field. Incomplete second and 10, stay patient. Stay on schedule and be okay with a punt here and there. That's okay. And the other thing is, as a part of that patience, Florida State needs to understand that you can run the ball in this, on this Duke team. They're really active up front. They will shoot the gaps. They're going to they're gonna be a pain for Florida State's offensive line, which has struggled some against quickness to, to block at times in the running game. But if you find the right mix, and I think, I think FSU is starting to find, figure out a little bit of what their personnel can do here, 
Clemson ran for 213 yards on 40 carries on this team. That's 5.33 yards per carry. Notre Dame ran for 159 on 32 carries. It's 4.97 yards per carry. You can run the football on this defense, but you have to be patient and willing to do that. And you have to be willing to do that when you're not getting a bunch of big plays in the running game. You have to be willing to just keep plugging away and taking that five-yard gain, four-yard gain. You have to be patient. And ultimately, despite those two teams running the football with that much success, they still didn't score any points. Turnovers and red zone failures sunk those offenses. So that's really key number three. You've got to have some wrinkles in for the red zone. You've got to have, you've got to make sure you cash in when you get there. So this is a game where if you have like a little muddle huddle type thing, different things to, to get them aligned wrong or whatever to, to get something you're really comfortable with that you, you're real confident is going to score. You have a couple of those things going. As long as, again, you know, you're going to execute it and you're not going to turn the football over, but I think you stick with, with what you do. And you got to make sure that you that you win in the red zone when you get down there. So that's key number three. Defensively, I think Florida State should be able to limit Duke's passing game pretty 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 uh, significantly. You got to stay over the top of Calhoun and force them to beat you elsewhere. You don't give up long plays to that guy, and you're okay. I don't think they're going to have a bunch of big plays in the passing game as long as you're conscious of where Calhoun is, and I don't think he's going to run away. From, from your corners as long, again, as you don't get double moved or, or that sort of thing. So then that brings us to key number four, and that is limit the big plays in the running game. So they average 6.63 yards per carry against Clemson. That's a really good Clemson team, really good Clemson defense. And they got some huge runs against Clemson. Just were able to spring guys. They got 4.73 yards per carry against a really good Notre Dame run defense. Go watch Notre Dame against, against Notre Dame's defense against Ohio State. That's a really good Notre Dame defense. They average 4.73 yards per carry against that team. And they are going to be patient. They are going to try to run it 35 plus times. They'll, if they can, if they're still in this ball game into the fourth quarter, they'll run it 40 times, 45. What you got to do is you got to keep rotating up front in the first half in particular. And you got to be very, very selective about your spots with this. But to me, This is a game where you get extra aggressive defensively to take the running game away. You force them, even if Riley Leonard is out there, force them to beat you in the passing game, force them to beat single coverage, force them to be better athletes than what you've got out on the field at cornerback and at safety. And I think if you do that, I think if you commit to stopping the run and you don't give up long, long running plays as you're aggressive, if you're just really good with your fits and you're aggressive and you have those extra, you have the plus one in the box at the snap, that sort of thing. And you're just playing aggressive and you tackle. I think you can hold this team in the five yards per play range. Clemson held them to 5.84 and Notre Dame to 4.82. I think somewhere in between there is realistic for this defense. I mean, I think they could match Notre Dame 4.82 area, but that's the defense plan really well. So I think that's where you can where 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 this game should go. I think you've got to play really aggressive defensively, win up front, and force them to beat you with with whichever quarterback's playing his arm. Now, in terms of what I think is likely to happen in this game, I do think Florida State's receivers 
should ultimately be the difference in this one. And I think Florida State's the most balanced offense, really the only balanced offense that they faced. And I do think Florida State can average over six and a half yards per play in this one. And they should have more success offensively than any team Duke has played so far as the best offense that they've played. But because of how inconsistent this Florida State offense has been and how opportunistic that Duke team has been, this is, this is a scary game for this Florida State team. You've got to protect the football. You've got to make sure you're protecting your quarterback. And you've got to make sure you execute the whole game because they are not going to beat themselves. So as far as what, I, what, what my projection is here, I've got Florida State 34, Duke 13. And I do think Duke would need continued red zone success, you know, a couple red zone stops that shouldn't really happen and likely a turnover to advantage to win this game. But that's not out of the question. And I do think Florida State's going to have to play better than they have of late to achieve this kind of result. But I do think that's that's along the lines of what I expect to see. Somewhere around 34 to 13 and really a relief to survive. If you if you manage to, to get that outcome, I think you walk away really, really happy because this is a Duke team that can beat a lot of teams. All right, that'll do it for us. Talk to you all after the game on Saturday. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts and wherever else you listen to podcasts, post and repost episodes on social media, and tell a friend. And if you haven't left a review in a while, do it again. It really does help the visibility of the podcast. Before we go, I'd also like to thank my advertising partners once more. That's EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and Justin Galloway of Benchmark Mortgage, serving Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, and Kentucky. You can also stop by the Unconquered shop at unconqueredpodcast.com where you can buy stickers, pins, magnets, t-shirts, and other swag. And thanks also to all those supporters over at Patreon where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast. I am especially grateful to those above the dynasty level. That is Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Neil Cook, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Dave Blair, Hector Cartagena, Jack Horton, Jimmy Van, Jonathan Kennedy, Keith Cheney, Lee Caswell, Tyler Kashishke, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. You all are far more generous than I deserve. I'm really grateful. Thanks to you all. This has been Unconquered with Doc Staples. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. I made this.